Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. We're in the F as in Foxtrot section, and the next one in the list is FFTW. That's the fastest Fourier transform in the West. That's what that stands for. It is, obviously, a library uh, for Fourier transformations, for for Fourier transforms. And uh, a Fourier transform is a mathematical process for convert or, uh, yeah, for converting or transforming one set one array into another i don't know if array is the correct word but um the examples that i've i've seen have been uh or or i guess the clearest examples that i've seen have have had to do with sine and cosine like waves like sine waves so for instance let's say you're trying to uh for for whatever reason you need to convert a sine wave to a uh, a square wave and in order to do that you essentially need to understand how many what what frequency of of those peaks and valleys that you see in a sine wave right if you picture a, a sound wave for instance you 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 probably whether you spend a lot of time in i don't know audacity or not you probably are are vaguely aware that a sound wave for instance is um a series of sort of hills and valleys or said another way uh it's a series of hills and inverse hills if you know what i mean because when you've got a hill that goes up 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 it ramps up ramps up and then starts ramping starts going down uh then it hits sort of like sea level it hits that zero point on your cartesian graph and it does the same thing but in in reverse right it, it it ramps down as it were to this sort of dip and then it starts ramping back up and then it's back at sea level and then it ramps back up into a hill and then down so in other words there's not really any valley it's just a hill followed by an inverse hill an upside down hill followed by a hill followed by an upside down hill and i i say it that way because i think that sometimes if we if we call a a, a sine wave sort of peaks and valleys uh then you forget that there's an inverse peak it's just a valley that bottoms out at zero and and that may be true in some in some applications but generally if it, if you know like w- without any kind of gate or limiter on it you 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 do have this sort of negative version of the positive uh, uh, underneath your uh, underneath the the zero marker on a cartesian graph so you've got this sine wave hills negative hill hill negative hill hill negative hill and you want to convert that into for instance a square wave i mean it could be something else it could be a sawtooth it could be something else but let's just go with square because i think that that one makes the most sense so if you if you think about the 
all the hills, not the negative hills, not the inverse hills, just the hills that go from zero to some quantity above zero, and then they, they cascade back down, and then they cascade back up. If you just think about sort of the the volume um, of the hill, of each of, of this, of some number of hills within a, within a space, then with Fourier transform, you could figure out what kind of frequency you need to add to that to that to that sine wave in order to sort of cause it to fill the square that you want to create now if it's a steady wave if it's just a steady tone then that's a pretty predictable thing like you could you can figure out pretty easily how to convert that steady constant tone into a square wave or a sawtooth wave or some you know whatever uh from from its sort of natural state of being a sine wave but when that volume is all over the place like my voice where the sound wave is is sometimes very high sometimes very low sometimes a great frequency sometimes not so great of a frequency frequency meaning how many sort of hills there are compressed into a, a given amount of time the 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 more hills there are the the more frequent there are that there's movement in the sound wave the fewer hills there are the less frequent or the lower frequency there are uh, on on how many times that sound wave sort of moves within a given amount of time. So the Fourier transform can figure out mathematically, and there's like a formula for this. You know, you could do this by hand, and I've seen someone do it by hand. Uh, you can you, you can figure out with this this the formula um, what it would require, what it would take, what what you could add to your sine wave to to fill it out into this square space, and that's a Fourier transform. And the significance of a Fourier transform is that when you can find the the difference between different sound waves, then potentially you have that there's a lot of things that you could do uh, between those two those two occurrences, like noise removal, for instance. A lot of that has to do with Fourier tra Fourier transforms because the computer can figure out the difference between the sine wave that produces um, I don't know a background noise, or or I should say a noise you have decided you don't want, and the noise that you decide you do want. It can figure out the difference, and then, again, once you have that difference, then you know, or the computer knows, how to restructure those sound waves to minimize or, or remove uh, some kind of sound. And interestingly, it turns out that this isn't, you know, it, like I say, this, a sine wave for me is the, the more obvious example available. Whereas it's actually the application goes far beyond the sound waves in in audacity, for instance, and uh, you can you can find application for this in, for instance, shape recognition in facial recognition software, things like that. the The way that the computer quote unquote knows the difference between a I don't know a circle and a square, for instance, is by sampling sampling points on a graph and figuring out where they intersect or, or what properties they share and and then it's able to potentially, you know, given the correct the the, the appropriate programming, it could tell uh, a, a, a circle from a square, for instance, or certainly um, the the outline of eyes versus the outline of uh, a nose or a mouth 
um, and things like that. So it is, this is the Fourier transform is the foundation for a lot of kind of um, pattern recognition within within software. So it's a big deal, and it's something that requires quite a bit of processing power. This is this the FFTW library claims to be the fastest Fourier transform in the West, and uh, that means that it's a collection of fast C routines for computing the discrete Fourier transform in one or more dimensions. It includes complex, real, symmetric, and parallel transforms and can handle arbitrary array size sizes efficiently. Okay, array was the correct um, term. FFTW is typically faster than um, publicly available FFT implementations and is even competitive with vendor-tuned libraries. That is the claim being made. And I, I, I say it's a claim because I have no way... Well, I'm sure I have some way, but I have not, um, I've not tested that. So uh, I assume that it knows of what it speaks. So the, uh, the actual package includes fftw-wisdom, fftw-wisdom-to-conf, fftwf-wisdom, and a couple of other variations on that. So those are the commands, but I think probably a lot of people are probably using uh, more than that. They're using the the library itself, which of course is included as um, a bunch of fftw.so files, as well as some CMake configuration files for, uh, you know, if you're developing with this stuff. The commands fftw-wisdom and, and all of the different related sort of variations of that, the, it's an interesting process because, so Fourier, uh, Fourier transform, Fourier calculations, I guess, it's a pretty intensive process, apparently, um, because... I mean, if you look at the equation for which this is all, for, from uh, upon which all of this is based, uh, there's a literal infinity sign in it. Like it, it, it takes it takes the sum of sine and cosine waves, uh, both real and imaginary, from infinity to infinity, or something like that. It's it's it is it's it's got big sort of conceptual implications. So, and I don't know what real, you know, I mean, obviously. It says infinity, but I mean, obviously, people can solve for it both by hand and on a computer. So it's, you know, it, yes, it's for infinite space, but obviously, we're dealing with finite values ultimately. But it's still very intensive, and uh, th there are, you know, if, if you want to do it efficiently, then you can use you can use what what F to FFTW calls a wisdom file. And a wisdom file is simply kind of a, well, it's pre-calculations for, for certain sizes, for certain um, dimensions, with basically, I, as I understand it, all the possible values within that, that selected range. But, but there's the added uh, benefit that the wisdom file is compiled on a specific processor. And I couldn't find documentation exactly, I mean, without reading the source code, which honestly, I probably wouldn't understand anyway. Um, I couldn't find exact documentation on, on what the variables here are, but I'm assuming that if you process it on a specific processor, then obviously there are various instructions available on a new high-speed processor that might just not have existed on older ones, or there might be uh, shortcuts on a system when transferring, I don't know, memory from, you know, the South Bridge to the North Bridge or something like that. I don't know exactly. I couldn't find, like, a bullet list of, like, what exactly an optimization 
in a wisdom file consisted of, but there is some good documentation on on the concept um, over at uh, cse.usf.edu, and I'll link to that in the in the um, show notes because there is a good there's a really interesting document on on what a wisdom file sort of enables FFTW to do. As I say, it just doesn't it doesn't go into really deep detail of what actually is being like what's the deciding factory a factor on 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 what an optimization is but it does explicitly say that if you if you build a wisdom file with fftw-wisdom uh on you know like one processor like let's just say an amd uh processor like whatever uh and then you take that wisdom file over to your intel machine then it might it might still work you know you you could still be using that wisdom file but you're not getting any of the optimization uh and i guess technically i i imagine there would have to be some some things that just wouldn't work um but maybe not anyway that's that's what a wisdom file is it's just pre-calculation it's being compiled by a computer and uh, i tried generating one and it just took too long even for just a four by four um, range. So fftw-wisdom-v for verbose-c for, I've already forgotten, fftw-wisdom-c for canonical, that's right, dash dash canonical. So optimize and pre-plan a canonical set of sizes, all all powers of 2 and 10 up to 2 to the 20th, which is something like a million and uh, 48,576, including both real and complex, forward and backward, in place and out of place transforms. Also includes two and three dimensional transforms of equal size dimensions. So it could be like 16 by 16 by 16. Um, it, it'll take hours if you try something like that. Just warning, uh, fair warning. And then dash O for output, uh, and then put it into like, you know, a wisdom file called, I don't know, my my wisdom or, or something um and then space and then the area that you want to pre-calculate for i tried a four by four because i thought that felt pretty conservative like four by four that that doesn't seem like a whole lot it's a lot it'll take a long time so do something really really small if you want to try it uh, for yourself it's not required you know like and it might not be worth it if you don't do a lot of Fourier transforms yourself if you're not programming something uh, or using a library that that would invoke Fourier your I mean obviously if you're using it on another application like with in GIMP or in Audacity or something like that then that's you, you, you don't unless you go in and modify the source code to look at your wisdom file that's not really something that's available to you so this is exclusively for for someone writing a a very a, you know a dedicated Fourier transform and and you want to optimize how quickly it runs then you could in advance run fftw-wisdom get yourself a compiled wisdom file and then point to it in your code and and again machine specific you wouldn't want to do that and then distribute your wisdom file that would not do any good unless all of your systems are 100% the same Next one in the list is Fluid Synth. Uh, this one is near and dear to my heart. I love this application. This is an amazing little um, synthesizer of sorts. It's really more of a sampler because it has everything to do with um, sound fonts. So uh, sound fonts are interesting because they are 
sample-based, it's a sample-based synthesis method, meaning that you're not constructing sounds from pure sine waves, sawtooth waves, things like that. You are, you're taking, you're recording something and then using a computer to transform it into lots of different pitches and um, speeds and things like that. So fluid synth is the component that can handle that part of it, the, the playback part of it. So the idea is that with a sound font, you take a brief sample of something, you save it as a WAV file, so it's uncompressed, it is encoded as a WAV file, in theory, that's quite a large f- file size, but sound fonts—they're—they're they're quite early in in computer synthesis, really. Um, like they—they they came around pretty early on, so they—you know—well before even I don't know five megabytes was considered a small file. Like they needed to be really small. They needed to be smaller than that, and. These days, you couldn't find a sample library that's five megabytes, or really one gigabyte is is often a conservative estimate for really really good sample libraries. Soundfont is not really really good sample library. It is it is the the bare minimum. You want a a, a very specific tone. Well, you get a sample of that tone. Now, if it's a percussive tone, then then it may be short anyway, right? I mean that that's not that much to sample but if it's something that you want to draw out like a string instrument that you and you want it to to simulate a, a bow being drawn across a string for several seconds then that would be a very long sample well in sound font you don't do that you take a sample of it and then you just you 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 program your sound font to auto loop that that little sample and with good sound wave editing, finding the zero crossings, things like that, you can usually often mimic the the effect of a a, a long drawn out tone successfully through looping. Does it sometimes sound like a mellotron? Yeah, sometimes it does, like a tape loop. You can kind of detect sometimes the loop point, and you think that's not someone drawing a bow across a string for three seconds. That is someone drawing a bow across a string for half of a second, looped for three seconds. So that there there are weaknesses of sound font, and I recognize that, and um, doesn't matter to me at all. Uh, a good sound font has a couple of different effects to really trick you into not noticing the loop points or the fact that you've really only heard a brief moment of a sound and the rest of what you're hearing is just a little bit of artificial reverb to make it sound like it's being, you know, like it's lasting longer than it sounded. So there's there's an art to sound font, and I think that's the component of it that I like possibly the most, and also I'm a big fan of tape loops and the Mellotron and things like that, so I don't really mind that sort of almost intentional, I mean, unintentional at the time, but now that we're, you know, 20 years after the invention of sound font, it it just, it sounds, it's got that certain, it's got a quality to it that I appreciate. But what I really appreciate about sound fonts is that they are very, very low, low, um, low investment, let's say, way to get a wide variety of tones that you just don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily have access to otherwise. And I think that there are a couple of different camps in synthesis, probably a lot of different camps in synthesis, but but broadly, let's just say there are two different camps in, in, sampled, in sampled synthesis. And one is, well, let's take sampling technology 
and use it to to represent all possible variables in an analog sound system and see how close we can get. And you, and when you do that, you see sample libraries that literally are several gigs large and they have samples of things f- you know designed uh to be to to sort of switch over depending on what you want. So if you if you need that long drawn out bow across a string, then maybe they'll have a longer sample for that. I mean, it'll probably it'll get looped eventually because there's no way of predicting how it, you know all the different lengths of time that you might want something drawn out. But it'll be a longer sample. And then if you know that you just want a quick sharp little tone, then it will be a a separate sample just for that. Uh, For pianos, you often see uh, separate sample banks for, you know, depending on the, the, um, I want to say velocity, is that right? Velocity of, of the, of, of, of the key press. Are you, are you banging down on the keys or are you lightly tapping the keys? And, and there's a different sound sample for that. It's not just the same sound um, at a higher amplitude all of a sudden because it detected that, yes, you, you actually hit that key harder than, than, than earlier. So there's that theory. And, and the theory is that you're going to really just capture all those variables. You're going to try to make your sampled library as true to the physical performance of an instrument as possible. The only difference is that you're doing it on a, an electronic keyboard that, that that's sending MIDI signals, but that your sample library is reacting differently based on some parameters of your MIDI data. Higher higher note velocity means a different sample gets called than, than a lower note velocity. A longer key press means that a different sample is going to be called compared to a tap a quick release key press and so on. The the other camp is sort of I think like the sound font sort of theory which is close enough is good enough and and I have an appreciation for that kind of like recognition that this is synthesis this isn't the physical world this these are electronic instruments that you are hearing and and here you go. I I understand both camps and I respect both camps and and a lot of the video game music that you hear these days are is possible essentially because of the 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 first camp the the let's mimic the real world camp of synthesis like those 30 gig sample banks out there orchestra in a box type of like like libraries of sound i mean that enables a composer to to compose essentially orchestral music like you would hear at the cinema before a video game where the budget is much much lower than certainly the budget for music is much much lower than a big screen uh, movie but they can still get that the sound and the feel mostly of an orchestra can you tell the difference yeah probably i mean if you go listen to uh the soundtrack for um trying to think of something pathfinder kingmaker versus the soundtrack for kingdoms of amalur you'll know the difference they they both sound great but pathfinder kingmaker was clearly composed on or even um well who cares uh pathfinder kingmaker obviously composed with samples uh kingdoms of amalur obviously recorded by an actual orchestra you you, you know the difference if you know what to hear f- if you're if you're listening for it but the um the admission that you're just tinkering around on a synthesizer i respect that i like that because i mean ultimately that's what a lot of us are doing we're just 
poking around on a synthesizer. And so I, I quite like the sound font concept, and I love that you can get, for instance, a, a piano library uh, for 852 kilobytes. Actually, that's not a piano. Sorry, that's not a piano. That's a cello. Um, piano. Piano library for... Here's, here's one. For 656 kilobytes piano, um, I mean, and they they vary. You know, they there there are different different sound sound fonts created by different people with different uh, sample rates and different um, different lengths of samples and different number of samples. Uh, at its most basic, like if you're getting a 652 kilobyte piano sound font, you're realistically probably getting like one. One sample. Someone pressed a key on a uh, on a, a piano and recorded it for half a second, and then turned it into a sound font. They dumped it into a program uh, and and said to the program, "That's your sound. That's the the bass sound. Here's the frequency um, is this, and therefore uh, it is this note on the keyboard. And it, you can find that out in. I mean, you can you know what key you pressed on the piano, but you can also find that out in Audacity. You look at the you go to the change pitch function, and it tells you the current uh, frequency of that note. And so you take that, you put it into the program. Now everyone knows what the baseline is, and then the sound font application knows that when Fluid Synth, for instance, asks it to, or or when Su- Flu- Fluid Synth knows when it 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 takes that sound font, it imports that sound font to play a tune with, it knows that the bass note that it has access to is, let's say, a middle C in in this example. And then in order to get five steps above that to a G, it needs to play it instead of at this frequency, it needs to play it at that frequency instead. Simple. So a really basic sound font is going to take exactly one note and just calculate the difference between this note and that note and play and just increase the frequency or decrease the frequency, whatever it takes to change that pitch. As you can imagine, outside of uh, maybe a single octave, you can kind of start to tell that that's what's happening. Um, so a, a slightly better sound font might might include different samples at different octaves so that at least... At least you're basing your 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 differential on on something closer to your target. Uh, so, for instance, I've got a sound font for a Roland piano, um, which contains something like 64 samples, and that's 6.9 megabytes, so seven megabytes. Um, so that's that I I guess is considered pretty large for a sound font. I mean, they can get larger, but but generally that's kind of the the range you're looking at like maybe a megabyte up to 10 megabytes something like that and and how do they sound well i think they sound really good like i say i'm not i'm not picky so i think they sound amazing i think they're just great little quick and easy ways to get just those different tones into your music and yeah you're not fooling anybody probably you're probably not making anyone think that you broke out your actual guitar and a sitar and your violin or your cello people are are probably hearing the difference but i don't know like are you ashamed of doing synth music then then yeah i guess maybe maybe don't use sound fonts but if if you appreciate the the fact that you're using synthesizers um for what they are then i i don't know for me i think that's a 
a valid reason to use sound font. Fluid synth is the component in all of this that plays a sound font. It's not the only component, that's not the only tool that you could use to to play sound fonts. You can use uh, MuseScore, you can use LMMS, you can use QTractor. No, I'm sorry, actually QTractor uses, I think, a Fluid Synth plugin to play it. So yeah, so uh, Fluid Synth, MuseScore, and LMMS are the Actually, LMMS might even use Fluid Synth as well. Yeah. So, in other words, Fluid Synth is pretty important. Like, it's a really great little. It's it's the like if you were out out at a music store buying synthesizers, uh, Fluid Synth would be that rack unit that loads in samples and plays it back at different pitches as desired by your keyboard. And that's what Fluid Synth is for your digital uh, rack as well. It's that little. That's that unit where you load a sound fi- a sound font into sf2 file and it it understands its base note it it does all the calculations to figure out what note it needs to, or what frequency it needs to play to get to a certain target note and it plays it back and you can try it for yourself it's um the command is fluid synth and then a path to a midi file with with midi data in it dash a for your audio output and you could do pulse audio you could do also you could do a file f i l e file will just instead of playing it out to you, it, it saves the playback, uh, the, the sound, to a WAV file called fluidsynth.wave in your current directory. So whatever you want to do, dash A pulse audio, you hear it right there, dash A file, it goes to a file, and you can play it later. And then a path to a sound font. The sound font is loaded by fluidsynth, and the song is played back to you. When this is happening, you are dropped into a fluid synth prompt, and there's a bunch of stuff you can do there. This is a synthesizer, so you can you can manipulate what you're hearing, what what what's being played back. So, for instance, if you have a sound font with different sound banks in in that single sound font, like I said, there there are different different sort of complexities of sound fonts. Some of some sound fonts just have one you know a note that you, that gets played back at different pitches, but Others uh, are, are ha- have options to them. You might have a, a sound font that conceptually mimics a, a specific thing, like I don't know a violin, but but within within a violin, you've got lots of different you've got d- different sounds you could produce with the violin. You've got pizzicato, you've got tremolo, you've got I don't know normal, um, and so possibly there might be uh, different uh, tones that you could different a different sample set you could trigger within that sound font so from within the fluid synth prompt you can type in for instance prog 1 2 and that looks at whatever's loaded in in at at program 1 but to load the sound bank, the second sound bank within that program, for instance. So there's there's quite a lot you can do to sort of manipulate how you're hearing a MIDI file back. And a lot of MIDI file uh, files have um, different instrumentations all within that MIDI file. And be, because there are MIDI channels, and a, a different MIDI channel can be assigned to a different uh, instrument. And this is all encoded by a, a, a standard called general midi and it's something from like 1 to 128 is it zero is there a zero i don't think so i think it's 1 to 128 and 
they're all it's 128 general instruments that you might expect to find at certain channels it's it you don't have to follow that spec but you can and if you do then if someone has a general midi sound font or a general midi setup then they can download a MIDI file and expect that what's what appears on a specific MIDI channel, a general MIDI channel, you know, for instance, might be a piano on that channel. Well, no matter what piano you have available on your system, as long as it's on that MIDI channel, then then it'll play that piano sound. So you get generally the same experience regardless of your setup. And fluid synth, well, fluid synth doesn't I don't think really cares about that. That's just general MIDI. So if if the MIDI file has been has been encoded uh, has has followed general MIDI uh, sort of specifications, then you can you can assign your MIDI instruments, your sound fonts, to the appropriate channels and get a playback that makes sense. Um, this is really important for percussion, really. Like that's that's one of them that that you really want to to get percussion on the percussion channel because otherwise you just hear seemingly random notes, usually completely off key, because you've got I don't know your piano assigned to your percussion channel or something like that. But uh, Fluid Synth will play back MIDI files in short, and it plays that back for you live instantly or to a file. Okay, definitely time for some coffee. Let's go get some of that. We'll come back for Free Cell Solver. I have my coffee. This is again uh, the big cozy, which which is a name I just I, I absolutely find hilarious. Um, the big cozy is from Flight Coffee, New Zealand. If you're ever in New Zealand, be sure to stop by Free or F- F- Flight Coffee. I don't I've never been there. I just get it mail order, and it is very good coffee. Highly recommended. So uh, let's see. This is in fact I should say. I should say that uh, Big Cozy might be not my new favorite. I still, my, my new favorite, or my, my favorite is still, what's it called, Milky or something like that? Milky Bomb or just Milky? I don't know. Whatever that one is. Um, the, but this one is nice. It's a deep flavor, kind of rich. Tastes like coffee, you know? And and I think I think it's kind of, it's taken the place of, uh, I think it's called Bomber. Bomber um, was okay, but now that I've tasted Big Cozy, it's kind of taken the place of Bomber. Unfortunately, Big Cozy is a seasonal one. They are only going to sell it during the winter, apparently, so I better enjoy it while it lasts. Next in line is Free Cell Solver, and uh, this is a pretty complex one. It's got both a library, libfreecell-solver.so, and a bunch of commands, and the commands I don't really, I mean, I don't really, I don't play solitaire. I should. I, I think I'd probably enjoy it, but I, I don't play it. And so a lot of this is completely foreign to me. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I don't know how, you could tell me how to solve it and I, st- I still wouldn't understand the game. So whether that's useful or not, not entirely sure. Probably not. So uh, I, I know exactly as much about Free Cell Solver as I've read in the readme files, and the simple entry point is fc-solve. That's the primary, um, that's the primary command, probably, that people would 
use. Um, for it, though, you need a board state. And now the board state can be expressed uh, just in a text file, and presumably it could be of varying complexities. So the one that they give in the in the sample has uh, about eight row eight yeah eight rows and one two three four five six seven columns mostly and then it sort of shuffles down to six towards the end so, yeah seven 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 and then six 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 um so and the notation is is relatively self-explanatory there's four c that would be four clubs two c two clubs nine c nine eight c q s so that's queen of spades four s four of spades two h two hearts and so on so it's just it's an array of of things and to solve that you do fc dash solve dash p for parsable output and then my cell you know dot cell or whatever my cell dot board or whatever you've called your my cell dot txt whatever you've you've called your thing you might want to uh, pipe that out to less or more or most, and then it shows you the board state of each uh, of each step that you would need to take um, in order to solve the thing. And this, I mean, this is like something like 120, 137 steps is is what it is what it outputs. But it is, um, you know, it's just like chess output. It's it's just letters and numbers, and uh, you you can kind of step through it and view the different the different states of your board until you have you've solved it. So I'm gonna in real time here. I'm gonna try modifying my cell dot cell such that it only has four rows of data just to see if if that what that does to to the efficacy of this solver because that might not be a valid board state that might never happen uh yeah so that that is not a valid board state i guess in a free cell board i guess you must line out all the cards at at, at the beginning because it does look like it wants all cards to be present so there you go that's that's free cell solver there there are a bunch of other um commands free cell solver parallel free cell solver multi-thread and so on they don't take board states though they take start and end values and step values you can view a lot of those or sample sample uses of those in the shell scripts included in user share uh, free cell solver presets. There's uh, like 20 scripts, and look at those, and you'll see all the sample data. I don't understand that data. I don't. I I couldn't find documentation about it that I understood. So uh, I'm not sure what those are useful for. Probably they're very interesting. I just don't know enough about solitaire for it to make any sense. I have no context. So if you do play solitaire, specifically free cell, I guess, then that might be of interest. It's a fascinating sort of, it's fascinating that someone thinks, that someone has that designed. I think it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, certainly if you were programming free cell, I can imagine you would love to use that library for a solution because uh, obviously if you know the correct solution, then you can alert your user that, that a move may not be good or you could provide a hint move uh, feature for your, your player. So I, I think, I imagine that would be a very useful li library to have as a developer of, of, of free cell, I guess. But um, I, I, yeah, I, it's beyond, it's beyond my, my understanding because I don't, I don't play that game. Uh, next up is FreeType, which is a free, high-quality, and portable font engine. FreeType is a free and portable font rendering engine. It has uh, been developed to provide support 
for a number of font formats, including TrueType, Type 1, and OpenType. It's designed to be small, uh, efficient, highly customizable, portable, while capable of producing high-quality output. It's freetype.org. This is the this is the big font library for your system. Like, this is a this is a big deal. Um, this you know when we say a font library and, and a font rendering engine, what what that really means is that there is a thing out there that knows how to look at specific files called you know true type files ttf files and it knows how to decode that data and render what it's trying to describe it's no different really than a library that knows how to decode for instance a J- a jpeg file or a png file or even like an html file it just it knows how to look at some data and produce the thing that that data is describing. In this case, it's it's a bunch of glyphs. It's letters and numbers and and so on symbols. Now, along with that, there's a bunch of other things. There's there's um there's you know the the automatic kerning that's being expressed. There's um there's aliasing to to make them look smooth. There's there's um there's the size of the glyphs. Uh, the, the specific font being used to 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 fill in those those glyph spaces and so on. It's obviously a really important library to have on a computer. You'd want that. You you I mean, there there is the ability to just paint pixels in shapes of letters, and and that does work. We've seen that in the past. It, it's perfectly suitable. Uh, in fact, it is still suitable for certain terminals like that's all that a lot of terminals use is just the ability to to render to render output as letters that that's a pretty common common thing you're not loading free type every time you log into a text only console of a server but um once you get that gui up and running you want the pretty fonts and that's that's the thing where free type steps in and and provides in this package there's a bunch of header files in case you need to use free type in your application there a lot of that is going to actually be taken care of by your framework so a lot of times you won't consciously be using free type but you might you might need it for something specific um and then there's a, a library that that does the actual the actual work and uh, there's some some lines for uh, the profile profile.d for a login shell and it just exports uh, an environment variable. Next one in the list is Freeor plugins. Freeor plugins, and I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I don't think there's a way to pronounce it correctly. It's F R E I zero R, and so let's call it Freeor. Uh, it, these are video plugins. They are they are ways to affect a video file or a video stream, I guess. They are, uh, they're, they're intended for, like, video editing. They're not intended as, like, live effects, although they can be wrapped up as live effects. But, yeah, you're, you're gonna see them in things like KDN Live and Shotcut in, um, what's the other one? The other one. Um, FFmpeg even can use Freeor, um, plugins. Oh, uh, Flowblade can, can use it. That wasn't the other one I was thinking of, but that is another one that can use them. So they're, they're, they're effects that do things like, um, let me think, introducing, uh, fake VHS artifacts, uh, introducing fake dusts, d- dust specs to, to mimic a, a film reel or film footage. 
probably a desaturation filter, I would imagine, transforms, cropping, things like that. Some of those may may exist as free or plugins, some of them may not. I, I'm just actually rattling off effects that I can think of from Caden Live, and, and not all of those are free or, but a lot of them are. They're there, free or, and they do funky things with, with video footage. Some of them are really, really useful. Others are, you know, you, you can only assume are highly experimental or sort of just for fun. And and I can't quite imagine what you would do with them. But when you're talking about plugins and effects, there's always the question of, well, what's, what is not useful? Because, I mean, there are some that are clearly useful. Like some, some plugins, it's like a very common thing, like a chroma key, uh, which Freor, as far as I recall, does not have. You can kind of think of that being obviously useful, like most people are going to expect to find a chroma key effect in a video editor. Whereas other things, uh, like a, um, let me look, like a, well, actually that's really useful too. Um, I can't find a non-useful one, but, well, here's a hard light effect. Here's a defissure effect, like a, a presumably to defish eye footage. I mean, is that really super useful? Maybe for like that one time that you accidentally shot something with fisheye and want to reverse that. Um, is it going to be perfect? Probably not. Hue shifter, is that going to be totally useful? Um, here's a letterboxed uh, effect. I mean, is that useful? I mean, it might be for an effect, but I mean, it's not really letterboxing your footage. I mean, it is, but it's also not. Um, emboss, that, that one probably not super useful. Edge glow, not very useful. So th there's a lot of different effects, and I think that there are probably varying degrees of usefulness, but like I say, my point is that what exactly is useful, what's not useful. Like when you're trying to achieve a an unexpected effect, then suddenly these weird oddball ones become kind of useful because you 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 find something that 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 alters your footage in an unexpected way. So you, you you try it, and then you combine it with another effect, and then you combine that with yet another effect, and suddenly you've got something really unique that's kind of the greater of the sum of its parts. So even the seemingly sort of you know, student project, like, here's how to make video footage look different, even those can sometimes be really, really surprisingly useful, because really all you want to do is distort this footage and put it under some kind of randomizer, and then apply a color filter over it, now you've got a, a cloud effect that you, you wanted to make, you know, so you don't care that it's, that some of these are completely destructive to the, to the footage, because that's what you wanted. And again, others are really, really obviously useful, like alpha top, alpha gradient, alpha, um, alpha over, alpha zor, all those kinds of, like, compositing effects, like, that you would just expect, you would just think that that should be in a video editor. So Freeor is super, super useful, if you ask me. Like, I don't know what uh, video editing on Linux would look like without the Freeor plugins. And again, not saying they're all clearly useful, uh, and some of them some of them, I, I guess what I'm saying is that some of them, you look at your list and you just think, why is this stuff cluttering up my list? Wouldn't it be better if I just didn't have those options? But then an on another day, you think, I don't have enough options here. I need more free or plugins than what I have. So they're, they're really, really amazing little plugins with, with varying degrees of immediate usefulness, but, but they're a lot of fun to mess around with. And if you don't, if you, if you try Cadian Live and try some of the effects on there, I mean, some of them will, will, if you don't do them right, then they look useless. 
you know, if you're alpha overing nothing, then that doesn't seem very useful. But if you're alpha overing a, a motion graphic that you want to insert into a thing, then maybe that is useful. So you, you do sometimes have to do the thing correctly. And Freeor doesn't provide a whole lot of guidance. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty raw input and output in terms of the UI. Uh, I think Cadian Live does a little bit to cushion that, but I think they're, you know, it could probably be done better. Um, but it's a, it's a great set of plugins. It, it, it's a big value add for video editing on Linux. Next up is FreeBiddi, F-R-I-B-I-D-I. That's a Unicode bidirectional algorithm library. What does that mean? Well, to do a right-to-left language, like Arabic or Hebrew, then you need something to figure out how to make how to make that look correct on a system, and that's that's one of the things that, that that's what free 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 biddy does it um it just it ensures that that you're able to do a right to left language output and and make it look um you know like people would want it to look this is i mean i can imagine it would be really really important i've never tried to do right to left anything but just thinking about designing um interfaces and and user interfaces just going from left to right and and trying to make sure that it looks okay when it's being resized and so on that's hard enough um but imagine now adding in that the complexity of oh yeah and i also need to account for um a system in which in which all of this is being rendered from the opposite direction that's got to be tough there is a command called freebiddy and it has uh the ability to parse a file containing strings and uh converts a logical string to visual which i i don't really know what that means but um that's what it does it uh you could do for instance echo hello world into hello.txt and then do free biddy uh let's do a force uh right to left which i think is dash dash rtl yeah dash dash rtl hello.txt and you get uh in the right uh fr- from the right hand side of your terminal the 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 string hello world so that kind of gives you a, a small indication of of what this does but I, I i know that there's a lot more here that i'm that i'm not not using uh, i don't know uh, due to the fact that i I've never used a right-to-left language before in my life. So uh, FreeBiddy is just the command interface to the FreeBiddy library. And obviously the package's primary offering, I think, would be the FreeBiddy library itself for use in your uh, programs when you are trying to account for right-to-left text. Last but not least is Fuse, or LibFuse. No, it's just Fuse is the name of the the package which which contains libfuse and uh, a command or two i think uh, fuser mount is contained in this package and uh, something about user lock management is included in this package so fuse is essentially an attempt to enable the users to to create and interact with file systems without having to fiddle around with the Linux kernel. I mean, the kernel is still being involved. It's bridging a virtual file system to the thing that is being mounted. So there's still interaction there. And from what I understand, Fuse is a set UID root. So there's a privilege escalation happening when Fuse is being used. But the advantage is that when there's the Fuse module in a kernel, then 
that module exists and it can take it can it can understand drivers written for fuse and that's that's huge because otherwise anytime you wanted to mount a file system that you hadn't remembered to compile into your kernel or that wasn't available in the kernel then you wouldn't be able to access that it just wouldn't exist it wouldn't be a thing you could do unless you could get that driver compile it into your kernel and and then use i, I guess you could you know compile it as a module and load it into the kernel but all of that that's root stuff fuse says okay the the root user of this system has is comfortable enough to include a fuse platform and on that platform you can build and interact with drivers for additional file systems fuse sort of translates that file system to something that the kernel recognizes dynamically um there are a lot of drivers out there for fuse the one that we just talked about a couple of episodes ago was cryfs that the the encrypted file system uh that you could use to store your data on someone else's computer was is the big use case you you put it into this little encrypted vault a cryfs volume and you put it anywhere and it doesn't matter people can't get to it because it's encrypted and, and that library if you look at if you do an ldd on user bin cryfs and then grep for fuse sure enough it, it's using libfuse and that's why when you create a cryfs volume you're just doing it as a normal user you don't do this as root you just you you create it it gets it, it gets mounted on at some location on, within your file system and all of that just kind of happens for the user magically um the command fuser mount that is included with this uh, this uh, package is not very useful. I mean, it's probably useful for something, but uh, it's not super useful as far as I can tell. Fuser mount, options, mount point. I couldn't get a mount point to mount with fuser mount. And every example online only ever used fuser mount to demonstrate unmounting a file system. How did it get there? Nobody knows. So that's kind of puzzling. I couldn't figure that one out. I, I, I think as as commands go, though, I... I I don't know that that's the feature of the fuse package. I really think that the feature of the fuse f- package is right there in the in the URL of its source. It's libfuse. Like that's the that's the big feature here. libfuse.so. That's the thing that's that's enabling fuse driver uh, yeah yeah, drivers written for fuse to to operate to function and and those are the commands that you're going to use probably cryfs i think sshfs is a fuse library as well is that a even a thing do i have it yeah i do ldd probably user bin sshfs uh grep fuse yeah that's another one so um sshfs is a is something that's written for fuse so we can mount a file system a remote file system over ssh because of fuse so it's it's a huge huge deal and it's something that one it's one of those things that ideally you don't even recognize you don't realize you're using it it's just a magical thing that your computer does and you might momentarily think oh cool it didn't even prompt me for my root password but generally speaking you won't even think about it it's just it's a it's a way for you to interact with your computer easily and and with peripherals easier than you know than before having to do everything as root that's fuse that's all the f packages that we have in in the l uh, section of slackware thanks for listening talk to you next time
Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not Klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open Scientific advances are oftentimes sudden accomplished facts before most of us are even dimly aware of.